This is a UC Public Policy Channel program from the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Visit us at www.uctv.tv/public-policy for more discussion on solutions for the good of all. Alan Carey is the Vice President for Government Relations for the National Association of Evangelicals. Since 2005, he's made a, a major contribution to the involvement of evangelicals in uh, poverty-related issues. I've watched that. Before that, he worked at World Relief in, uh, in a number of developing countries among people in need, Croatia, Mozambique, Kenya, Burundi, Indonesia. So he brought that experience with him to the National Association of Evangelicals. He'll talk about uh, the evangelical movement, about their relationship to poverty, about their relationship to politics. I've, I've asked him to help me figure out how it can be that the great majority of white evangelicals voted for Donald Trump in 2016 and again in 2020. It just seems incongruous. Uh, I'll also address that question in the, in the blog post that I'll publish as a companion for this webcast. Now, Galen Carey. Thank you, David, and uh, thanks to each of you for the opportunity to share some time together. I'm looking forward to our dialogue. Uh, I want to share a little uh, more about myself beyond what's in the, the bio that they put on the website, because uh, as David mentioned, I, I am one who has been embedded within the evangelical Christian movement. And so I hope that my story could uh, shed a, give some color, perhaps, to uh, what it means to be an evangelical. Then talk about the evangelical movement a little more broadly, and then evangelicals in poverty, evangelicals in politics. And then we'll come at the end to the things that David's talking about as far as uh, Trumpism. Uh, does that sound all right? So, well, first of all, um, I'm the, the son of uh, a couple of farm kids. Uh, my mom grew up in Kansas, my dad in South Dakota, um, and they didn't travel very far away from home until they were went off to college, which is where they met in Minnesota. And uh, after they got married, my dad was a pastor for a while, but then uh, they moved from Kansas, a little town of 80 people in Kansas, uh, to the Philippines. Uh, so I, I spent the second half of my childhood from age seven to until I graduated from high school uh, living in the Philippines. Uh, and that profoundly impacted my life. But what I wanted to bring out of that is that my parents were part of a very large movement of evangelical missions which uh, has been, had been going on for a long time, but really exploded after World War II, uh, when so many uh, Americans uh, who had been serving in the war overseas came, and people like my, my, my parents weren't in the military, but others like them came from farming communities and rural places all over the country. Their eyes were opened as they were brought around the world, and they saw how big God's world was, and many of them then had calls to mission work, as my parents did. Uh, they wound up spending 36 years there in the Philippines. And uh, a little later, I'll talk about the work of uh, Robert uh, Woodbury, who has analyzed what the impact of this Protestant missionary work has been around the world. Uh, then I came back here to the U.S. for college, uh, thoroughly uh, confused about who am I as someone. I wasn't a Filipino, but at the same time, I wasn't also fully an American. So I'm what they call the third culture uh, kid. I uh, did my college work uh, near Chicago and suburbs of Chicago, and also then attended a seminary, did my MDiv at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Uh, while I was in seminary, I lived and worked in a church in Chicago in a very low-income neighborhood. And uh, the school was in a wealthy suburb, but I lived in a very poor community. And so this juxtaposition of 
uh, you know, being among the wealthy during the daytime and then the afternoon going back and uh, ministering with people uh, from around the world, uh, many of them uh, very, uh, very low income, uh, was very instructive to me and helped sort of capture my heart for trying to ask, how does the gospel really speak to these uh, these different these divisions and challenges and uh, on the one hand there's excess in some communities and deprivation in, in others of course I had experienced similar things when I was growing up in the Philippines uh, we lived in uh, the island of Cebu uh, a very small town town about a thousand people um, it was not that long still after the second war so that there there was a lot of um, rebuilding still needing to be done. It was around that time when I got a letter in the mail from this organ young organization called Bread for the World. And they said, they said, hey, you know, uh, all you need to do is sit down and write a letter and you'll be helping a whole bunch of people. So I thought, wow, that's a, that's a pretty nice uh, deal. So I signed up, became a member and I encourage you all, if you haven't already done so, to become members of BREAD. Uh, and I became the volunteer coordinator for the 8th Congressional District in Illinois. And so we got a group of us, we met once a month, and we'd sit around a dining table and actually wrote, hand wrote letters to our congressmen and to our senators. Our congressman was a guy who turned out to be quite a crook, uh, Dan Rostenkowski. Um, uh, so we didn't get too far with him, but we got a lot of practice anyway, and it was um, it was a, it was a formative experience for me. Uh, I also, in this community where I was living and working, uh, met my wife. And my wife Delia, who we've now been married for 35 years, uh, was a daughter of Mexican uh, farm worker, a migrant farm worker, and uh, then they he settled in Chicago, so she grew up in Chicago. Uh, but she, I learn to appreciate what a rich culture the Mexican people uh, have. And I got to see that kind of from the inside. And that then uh, got to me to be very interested in the situation with a lot of immigrants from Mexico who um, contributed enormously in many different ways to the well-being of our nation, uh, but oftentimes struggled and many of them without even uh, proper documentation for being here. So that was another long journey uh, in terms of engagement. In 1986, we, I helped to set up through World Relief, a whole network of churches that help people to get legal status through the Immigration Reform and Control Act. Uh, as, as David mentioned, I served about 26 years with World Relief uh, part of the time was resettling refugees here in the U.S. The other, other part was living and working overseas in the countries that you mentioned. And again, I want you to notice the international engagement that the evangelical movement cultivate, has cultivated so that uh, they have sent missionaries around the world. They also have sent humanitarian workers such as myself around the world and engaged uh, often with very sacrificial gifts. I was very touched many times by how generous people were in giving uh, to support needs of people that they'd never met and never would meet. Um, and uh, there's, I think, something to be prized there. Uh, Nicholas Kristof, uh, who's, you may have read some of his work, he's a columnist for the New York Times, does a lot of travel in Africa. And one of his comments and made in a column a number of years ago was that he said, after you get uh, outside of the capital cities and you're in the remote areas that are hard to get to, uh, the, you, you, the only foreigners you'll run into are either Catholic or evangelical missionaries. And many of them serve, are serving without any recognition at all in, in small outpost mission hospitals or uh, doing a translate Bible translation, all different types of of work, uh, but they they uh, they they do it far from the headlines. Uh, and he said uh, he himself, being um, uh, liberal uh, and um, not not a, a Christian, but he said 
my people don't do this kind of work, but the people who are doing this are Catholics and evangelicals principally. Uh, of course, there are others as well. Uh, then, as David mentioned, uh, come, came back to the U.S. and joined the National Association of Evangelicals, and I'll share a bit more about that in, in a moment. And then the final thing I want to say, just in terms of introduction, is I'm also a pastor and a church planter, uh, which is something else that evangelicals um, give a lot of attention to, um, is one of our key commitments is sharing the good news of the gospel with other people. So my wife and I have a small congregation. It was meeting in our home pre-pandemic. Now we're meeting on Zoom in what we call the Zoom chapel. Uh, uh, but we're, it, it's a church affiliated with the Anglican Church of North America, which is a renewal movement within the Anglican communion. Uh, so that's um, my other, other hat. That I, actually, I don't have a hat, but the, my other role that I, I play. Um, so that's, I, I don't know that I'm a typical evangelical, but I, if you don't know other evangelicals, it's nice to meet you. And um, that's who you're going to be hearing from. <laughs> the next the next uh, uh, hour or two. All right, so talking about evangelicals more generally, I want to start by asking you um, to tell me uh, what an evangelical is. So if you just take about a minute to jot down some notes, and then in the chat, can you write like a one-sentence definition of what is an evangelical Christian? And then we'll just see what you... We'll, I'll read them out and we'll see what you, uh, that'll help me also to see where you're coming from. Okay, evangelical Christians focus on sharing the gospel, God's word, the Bible, as they see that only the gospel will cure the world of its ills. Okay. I believe evangelicals were people seeking to bring others into a faith uh, they believed in and help the oppressed. Lately, not so much. I'm interested in what you think of the terms being used by others who feel similarly post-evangelical or adjacent evangelical. Okay? Sort of an amalgamation of different denominations that place emphasis on grace and aptly evangelism. A Christian whose faith focus is on personal relationship with Jesus and God, scripture, and transformational experiences of metanoia, turning away from sin. So have at least one Greek scholar in the group. That's great. Uh, conservative Bible believer, Jesus as personal savior. Group of people who believe in God and the saving work of Jesus with an emphasis on evangelism and missions and the importance of a personal relationship with Jesus for a transformed life. Evangelicals believe in the gospel of forgiveness through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They have high respect for the Bible and the literal meaning of what it says. I think evangelical Christianity believes the essence of the gospel consists of the doctrine of salvation by grace alone. A group of Christians that believe in salvation by grace and faith in the death of Jesus for salvation and prioritize personal relationship with God and evangelizing others. Mm -hmm. They tend to be very conservative. Okay. Well, thank you all. Um, oh, and one more. Stand of, uh, st probably strand of Protestant Christianity that places an emphasis on a personal relationship with Christ through an experience of conversion or salvation and an emphasis on biblical inerrancy. Wonderful. Well, that's great. So um, one thing I noticed that one thing that jumps out of me, and I thank you all very much for this, uh, is you've uh, you've um, recognized that uh, there's nothing in any of your definitions about nationality or race or ethnicity or uh, political. Well, there was a few comments about uh, political opinion. Um, but at least in terms of the, the, the race part, we didn't, we didn't um, hear that. And that's absolutely correct because globally there are about 600 million or so uh, evangelical Christians. It's hard to 
we're, as, we're an amorphous group, so it's hard to exactly count us. But it's a, it's a sizable number of people, and it's actually in um, many parts of the world, especially in Africa and Latin America, uh, one of the faster growing uh, parts, one of the faster growing religious movements, period. Um, so, uh, so we are not, the, the idea of white evangelical is a concept that has relevance uh, to political scientists and sociologists and so forth that has very little meaning uh, to theologians uh, because it's not a it's not a theological concept or we and I don't come to you tonight speaking as a representative of white evangelicals and among uh, the NAE's members we don't have a single organization uh, that has been set up to represent white evangelicals. So um, that's oftentimes something that in, in the media and popular discourse, uh, the word evangelical and white evangelical are more or less, inter they're used interchangeably as if they're synonyms. And so that they're not. Uh, there are many streams of evangelicalism. I'm going to just try to share my screen right now and show you a, a couple of graphs just to give you a little sense of what I mean, if I can. So you can see that we have um, <laughs> many different uh, theological or, or church backgrounds that have all come together in this evangelical movement. And down at the bottom, sort of the core uh, groups, the Reformed, the Free Church, the Pietist, Wesleyan, non-denominational, Restorationist, and Adventist. But those then have grown into what we call the Anabaptist cluster, the Holiness cluster, the Pentecostal, which is uh, a newer but very vi vibrant part of our community, and then the, the other kinds of the Baptists, um, which are sometimes distinguished from Anabaptists. And so the 42, there's 42 or so denominations that are uh, part of our uh, membership in, in the NAE. Now I'm gonna show you a little broader, if I can find it here, I'll show you a slightly broader um, uh, chart that, that also shows other evangelical groups that including those that are not members of the NAE. So just give me a second, let's see. Can you see this? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, let me see if I can pull it down there. Okay, so you'll see here, uh, that, again, there's a whole variety of, um, of emphases in, within groups that are considered evangelical. Uh, they, you know, ranging across different theological spectra uh, and, and then each one has more than one uh, expression. You know, there's, uh, it's, there are these families of Baptists. There's quite a few different flavors of Baptist. The holiness as well, Pentecostals, and so on. Okay, so that gives you some, just a little, um, little picture. Um, those are, I, and by the way, those are um, not yet, that's unpublished. We're still tweaking them a bit, but some fairly soon we should have those available to share. I can't pass them out just yet because they're still being tweaked. And who knows, maybe there'll be a new denomination by the time we get to publish them. Uh, but so what, what, what does bring us together? Well, David Bebbington is uh, probably uh, the best known uh, categorizer uh, of evangelical distinctives. So he's divided them into four parts. And this is probably familiar to you, but uh, he talks about biblicism, crucicentrism, conversionism, and activism. Those are four themes uh, around which evangelicals can be identified. So, as some several of you mentioned in your one sentence definitions, evangelicals are people who take the Bible very seriously, uh, and uh, see we see it at least in our theory, if not always in our practice, we see it as being foundational for everything that we do. Uh, the, the person who developed this his name is David Bebbington, B-E-B-B-I-N-G-T-O-N. Uh, you can look, you can easily Google him. He's a Brit. Um, and his, his definitions have really 
uh, stuck, I think. Uh, crucicentrism means the focus on the cross, the fact that it was Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross that makes possible our salvation. Uh, that is, uh, that, that's a core Christian doctrine, period, uh, but it's one that evangelicals give a lot of attention to. And then thirdly, conversionism, that the, the conviction that every single person um, has to make a personal, uh, have a personal encounter with God in which they uh, are, they turn over their life to Christ in their life that they become then a follower of his. So I'll tell you my conversion story. I was seven years old and my family, we we're actually on our way to the Philippines. We, we went by boat uh, back in those days before airplanes were very common. We went by boat. Uh, we uh, were out in Seattle waiting to get on the boat and uh, we're staying at this guest house and I'm playing with my sister in the yard and a little boy probably not more than a year or two older than me, came up to us and started talking and said, by the way, uh, I have a question for you. He said, are you saved? And I said, well, what do you mean by that? And he, so then he began to share with me uh, his understanding of what it means to uh, be saved, to come into this personal relationship with Christ, which transforms our life and brings us then out of uh, being under condemnation for our sin into a place of being forgiven and accepted by God. Uh, so we went back. We, I said, thank you very much. Went back and uh, my sister and I sat and talked with my mother and she talked with us some more and we knelt down on the little couch there. And my sister and I both gave our lives to Christ. So at age seven, uh, my theological formation was at a very early stage. Uh, but I still look back on that that event, which is more than 50 years ago. And in fact, uh, in 2013, which was the 50th anniversary, uh, my wife and I actually flew out to, to Seattle and went to the exact place where I gave my life to Christ and to, as a way of honoring that experience. Uh, so it's something that evangelicals take very seriously. And then finally, activism. Uh, we uh, believe that uh, we can't keep this message to ourselves, that we have to share the good news. We have to share the love of Christ with everyone. So love God, love your neighbor, and share the, the gospel. Go into all the world and share the gospel with every person. Uh, so those are the four things. And of course, if you look at that, you say, well, you know, I don't know. I think a lot of groups, a lot of Christian groups share to some extent each of those. And that's true. Uh, so for, that's why it's hard to count the number of evangelicals, because uh, there are in every, every denomination, uh, lots of people, uh, Christian uh, denomination, lots of people who would identify in this sense as evangelicals. Right. Um, my boss uh, was giving a speech a few years ago uh, at a major conference and afterwards there were some several catholic priests came up said to him and said well you know if that's what it means to be an evangelical count us in because we're evangelicals too and by some by some measures about 10 percent of the evangelicals in america are members of catholic um, communities all right so uh we have a we have a statement of faith I, I was going to show it to you, but I don't have it ready to show. So it's on our website if you want to see. Uh, and he has a seven-point statement of faith that's been widely adopted by evangelical communities. Um, and and it, it basically underscores those four points. So uh, now I want to talk a little bit about uh, how do we, in this activism uh, space, how do we uh, envision this faith uh, speaking into uh, public policy and the the life uh, of uh, the the public life in which we all live. So we have a document. It's called "For the Health of the Nation." Looking forward here. I have one on my desk. I'll, I keep it 
near my desk, I have my daily devotions reading it. It's, it's, uh, it's also available on the website, <laughs> nae.net. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a really nice summary of evangelical convictions as applied to public policy. It's called an evangelical call to civic responsibility. So there's two parts. There's a general part about the basis for engagement. And then there are eight principles that we uh, try to follow. Uh, in terms of the basis for engagement, uh, we start with creation, that in the creation mandate, uh, where God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, uh, that there's a, uh, a mandate for human beings to care for all of his God's creation and to justly govern that creation. Uh, it also tells us that every human being is made in God's image and therefore has essential human dignity that must be upheld. Uh, then we see uh, through the prophets the themes of justice and righteousness that are meant to characterize public life as well as personal life, uh, right relationship with God and with uh, fellow human beings. Um, and then that is in Jesus' teaching that's unfolded in his teaching about the kingdom of God, the reign of God in which we are invited to share. Uh, we then talk about the fact that because we are finite creatures, we don't know everything, we don't understand everything, and so we have to approach all areas of life, including public policy, with humility and civility. Uh, we don't know it all, and so many times, uh, and David could give a lot of examples of this, uh, there, there's a well-meaning laws are passed, and they have unintended consequences. And we think we're doing something good, and afterwards say, "Oh, well, there's some things that aren't aren't so so good," and so we have to go back and try again. Well, that's the that's the case. And so, whatever it is that you all uh, are thinking for your activist projects about, uh, I would venture to guess that at some point you might look back and say, "Well, uh, that was part of that was good, but part, now that I know more, I, I'm not. I think I would do something a little differently." And hopefully, we keep learning that way. Finally, uh, in terms of a general overall approach, we believe that representative democracy, while not the only form of government, um, and we believe that God works through any form of government, uh, but we believe that it offers perhaps the best potential uh, for uh, unfolding the. Uh, a, a system of governance that respects human dignity and uh, justice and righteousness. So we take our responsibility seriously as, as members of a democracy. And we have to say a democracy has taken a lot of dings in recent years, but nonetheless one that is a precious gift to be stewarded and, and to be upheld and rebuilt. Secondly, then we'll come to our principles, eight areas, which we say these are not the only things that people uh, should care about, but these are eight things that evangelicals have come to agree are important and, and that we should focus on them. And I have to say, as an aside, uh, that while we, we, we did secure agreement among our leaders that these are eight things, not every leader agrees about all eight of them or they don't put them all in the same order of importance. But the principles are, I'll just list them and then we can briefly talk about them. Religious freedom, the sanctity of human life, uh, protecting marriage, family, and children, uh, seeking justice and compassion for the poor and vulnerable, protecting human rights, promoting racial justice and reconciliation, uh, promoting peace and conflict resolution, and caring for God's creation. So it's a broad agenda, and it doesn't take a lot of um, uh, political insight to recognize that there at present is no member of Congress who subscribes to all eight principles of ours. Um, and so we find that uh, some are, are enthusiastic about one or two and others about another two, but uh, we, we haven't met anyone yet who agrees with us on all these things. So we think in that sense, it's a, a balanced agenda 
uh, that if put into practice would greatly bless our nation and would lead, lead to peace and prosperity. Um, I'll just give a couple examples of things that we're working on. We've done a lot of work on immigration reform, uh, which is a, an issue that calls on several of these principles. Uh, immigration is a lot of it is, has to do with family unity, bringing families together. And as you know, many families are separated by international borders. I have to wait for years on this for decades to reunite with their loved ones. We think that's certainly less than ideal. It's actually wrong in many ways. And so we want, we advocate for, for immigration policies that would allow families to unify and then keep them together. We also don't like the idea of tearing families apart, uh, especially those in mixed status households. <clears throat> uh, so that's been a long, long standing uh, policy concern. We have a resolution from 2009 that lays out in about seven pages uh, more interest, more detail what it is that we're working on. And we work in a coalition called the Evangelical Immigration Table to advance that. Uh, we've also done a lot of work on criminal justice reform. Uh, we have a resolution date from 1983 saying that way too many people are being locked up unnecessarily because it's, imprisonment is not the only way to address crime. Uh, that Since then, people weren't really listening to us, at least because since then, our prison population has approximately tripled, but has, has started to go down again. And there has been some positive movement, including the First Step Act. And just in December, we, we were able to get uh, reinstatement of Pell Grants for prisoners, which uh, we're very excited about. Um, well, there's more. I, I, in the Q&A time, I'm happy to talk about any of the other policy areas that, in terms of our overall agenda. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about now specifically poverty and how evangelicals engage with poverty. So I have a, a graphic. Let me see if I can pull this up now for you. Okay, so this is going to show you uh, some a range of evangelical organizations and networks that are these are members of the NAE. So um, I'll start with CityGate. CityGate is a network of um, ministries to the homeless and to those dealing with addiction and mental health concerns, uh, formerly known as the Association of Gospel Rescue Missions. So CityGate, along with the Salvation Army, is another one of our members, uh, operates something like around half of the homeless beds in, uh, in the country, and in some places, um, the only ones. Uh, so that they have a vital, they're playing a vital role in, in our social safety net, especially for some of the most vulnerable uh, people. And they, they provide a immediate uh, rescue needs like overnight shelter and meals and so forth, but also recovery programs and helping people to rebuild their lives. Uh, then we have, uh, let's see here, the uh, Compassion, which is, I believe, the largest totally privately funded um, poverty-related charity in the U.S. Uh, they're known for their child sponsorship programs uh, around the world. And then World Vision, uh, which is one of the largest uh, relief and development organizations in the world, and certainly the largest evangelical um, organization. And then World Relief, which is actually a subsidiary of the NAE, was founded by us. So this gives you a little sense of our priority on poverty uh, and human rights. Uh, the NAE was founded in 1942, right in the middle of World War II. And one of the very first things we did, 1944, was to found World Relief. Uh, and at the time, we, um, the immediate task was caring for refugees who had been displaced during the war and then rebuilding after the war. Um, and at present, World Relief is the only evangelical organization that uh, works directly with the State Department to resettle refugees 
around the United States as well as working uh, in other uh, poverty relief around the world. So, and then in the, the area of education, uh, Wheaton College is one example of one of our uh, Christian colleges that's a member of the NAE, was founded in the mid 19th century by abolitionists uh, and went on to train uh, scores and scores of missionaries and humanitarian workers. Some of their um, more noted graduates include Billy Graham, uh, who's noted for is probably the greatest uh, evangelist in, in, in at least in the American, um, American of the 20th century in America. Uh, also, uh, someone you may not have heard of named Wayne Gordon, who founded, uh, was a graduate in Wheaton and moved into the west side of Chicago and founded a, um, a church and a health clinic, which has now grown to be the largest uh, healthcare provider on the west side of Chicago, a community clinic. They have a very large program uh, with a lot of, um, lot, lot of uh, different ways of, of addressing the needs of the very poor. Um, Council for Christian Colleges and Universities brings together about 180 schools like Wheaton and other Christian schools. So those are some of the institutional ways that uh, our community has uh, tried to work together to address poverty concerns. Uh, then in the area of human rights, I mentioned our criminal justice work. Uh, prison Fellowship is the nation's largest uh, prison ministry. Uh, it was also uh, started um, by Chuck Colson after he was imprisoned after the Watergate um, scandal. Uh, they, they've gone on to, they, they engage evangelical Christians around the country and others uh, in visitation, in caring for the families of prisoners, and also seeking criminal justice reform. Uh, others, uh, such I mentioned the Evangelical Immigration Table, International Justice Mission that responds to uh, trafficking, uh, trafficking uh, people who've been caught up in, it, in human trafficking. Um, then the, in the in the missionary space, I want to I mentioned uh, Robert Woodbury. Let me just bring up his um, an article that I think you might find of interest. So there's a citation for it: the missionary roots of liberal democracy. So what Woodbury's done is is taken uh, massive amounts of data from uh, around the world. And he has um, analyzed uh, the, the trajectory of different places around the world where uh, missionaries of different types have been working or and or areas where they weren't working. And I don't have time to give you the whole argument, uh, but his basic finding is that uh, the areas in the world that have developed the strongest democracies are those which had uh, a large presence of Protestant conversionary missionaries. And he distinguishes those from Catholic missionaries and other, um, other Protestant missionaries who didn't emphasize conversion. The idea is that um, most in, in many places, especially in Africa, uh, the infrastructure for education, for healthcare, uh, for literacy, for uh, newspapers, uh, all, a lot of things that are part of what goes into making a democracy possible uh, were actually uh, came about in part through the work of missionaries, not all Western missionaries. A lot of times it was uh, intra-African missionaries as well. Uh, so that's another way in which uh, evangelicals have tried to address the topic of poverty. Let me come now to the topic of politics. And I'll have a few things to say, and then I'll be happy to interact more with you. Um, in my experience, healthy churches are filled with Republicans and Democrats. 
And uh, that small church that I lead has uh, people who voted for Trump and people who wanted to see him impeached. And uh, we love each other. Um, and I think that that's, the church is a place where that can happen and is a place where that should happen. A one-party church, in my mind, is almost as bad as a one-party state. And I lived for about 20 years in a one-party state, well, one-party city, but they acted like a state in Chicago. <laughs> and it, it's not a pretty picture. It's a, it's a recipe for corruption, for abuse, uh, for scandal, one scandal after another. Uh, so uh, the church is a, needs to be a place where people can come together who don't all agree. And so uh, in my mind, the church is not the place uh, to be a, um, uh, it's church is not an advocate advocacy organization in the same way that, you know, take your pick, the Sierra club, the national rifle association, you know, whatever, you know, issue you, you think of the church should not be a card carrying member of any advocacy organization, but, um, the church, there are these principles, such as the ones that laid out in the health of the nation that around which we can come together and we can maybe not agree in every detail of the right strategy, but we can all agree that God doesn't want children going hungry. And so if there are ways that uh, even they're not perfect, but there are ways that help children to be fed and nourished that we can get behind that. Now, many evangelicals, I believe have been co-opted by the religious right. And as I said at the beginning, the religious right are not so much religious, it's more political. It's a political movement. But I do, as David said, many evangelicals have been uh, brought into that movement. I think not really by their religion, but more by their politics. And uh, as we could say parenthetically, but perhaps not as to as great an extent, but there's also a religious left, and uh, there are also groups that have been co-opted into that as well. Um, but let's just stick, stick with the religious right. Uh, for example, I mentioned that uh, evangelicals have sent missionaries all over the world. And yet, when God brings some of those same people, the very same people here, uh, a lot of evangelicals have said, no, no we don't want those people here. And uh, so... You know, the, to me, that's a big, there's a big dissonance there. Uh, you're willing to spend your sacrifice and spend your money to send people to them, but you don't want them to come here. Uh, so in, in the evangelical world, um, media is very influential. In the days when any was found, it was mainly radio preachers. And radio preachers... Uh, just like TV preachers that came after them, uh, they rely on donations, just like uh, the advocacy groups now rely on donations. And the way you get donations is to be as extreme as possible. You have to be out there and you have to um, get people riled up and the, get an angry at the, at the opposition and so on. So uh, I think a lot of times the preaching gave way to um, politicking and many of those organizations then became very closely allied, uh, particularly with the Republican Party, uh, whereas uh, churches and denominations have not done that. So in any has 40 denominations, not a single denomination um, has a political action committee that, that you know, someone that, um, uh, that, that whose job is to get uh, people from their preferred party elected. We just don't do that. Uh, in fact, most, uh, contrary to what you may have heard from reading in the media, most evangelical pastors have no interest whatsoever in getting the freedom to endorse candidates for office. In fact, they're really pleased that the law pro uh, prohibits that so that when their member comes and says, can you endorse my favorite candidate? And they say, well, sorry, the law, law doesn't allow me to do that. And this is as it should be. Um, uh, on the other hand, we do think that it is proper for um, pastors 
uh, to speak to moral issues and uh, to speak to what God's word has to say about the principles of um, how we respond to injustice and abuse of human rights and, um, and poverty and disease and things like that. So, so we, in, in, in my preaching, I will sometimes uh, refer to issues that are in, in active in the public square, but I never say, and so uh, when you go home, please write a letter in support of S123 uh, or something like that. We just don't do that. Uh, there is a place for Christians to engage in, in supporting specific particular bills, but it's not in the, at least not in the worship service of the church. Uh, and, and, and in fact, um, even in the real churches that have been absorbed in the religious right, they don't do it in such an overt way. Um, it tends to be much more subtle uh, that just there are um, there. And I think the same thing happens in more progressive churches, because uh, uh, I've been in some of those as well, where there's a subtle a message given that, you know, we don't support those kind of people or that we don't support that party, uh, but it's not even really verbalized. It just, it's something that is, uh, it's part, it's been absorbed into the woodwork, so to speak. And so if, you, if you're gonna be part of this church, you don't wanna feel like you're an outlier you kind of go along and say, oh, well, it must be the way that Christians think. And I think that's, um, that's unhealthy and it weakens the church, the witness of the church. And I don't think it's a good way to run a country either. Okay, let me come just uh, for a bit to the topic of Trump and Trumpism. And of course, I, I guess I should have said this at the beginning, but whatever I say to you is my own personal opinions. I'm not representing the NAE or any um, particular, or my church, um, or, but just, just, you're just hearing from me. Uh, I wrote a book along with a colleague, um, Leif Anderson, who was our NAE president at the time, uh, called Faith in the Voting Booth. So we wrote, the, it came out in 2016, but we actually wrote it in the summer of 2015. And I have to confess that we totally um, missed the phenomenon of Trumpism. It wasn't on our radar at all. Uh, I mean, in, in, as we were writing, there was a crisis where in so, some states, the governors were saying, we don't want any refugees and they were being egged on by candidate Trump. But I told the people that were involved in this refugee work, I said, don't worry, you know, he's like a flash in the pan. He's not gonna last long you know, there, there's all, the Republicans always have one guy who's out in front, but then he's phasing in someone else. And so he's not, he won't be around for very long. And so if the, uh, the way that you tell a false prophet is that their prophecies didn't come true, well, mine didn't come true. <laughs> and it's important to avoid a reflexive ad hominem uh, reaction to, so, just because uh, some policy is connected to the name Trump, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean it was a bad policy. Uh, just because it has the name Biden to it doesn't mean it's a good policy if, if you're oriented in that direction. Uh, and I can give you examples of both, uh, just a couple. One, um, one of the things that uh, President Trump did I, that I think was good was that he appointed uh, ambassador at large for international religious freedom, uh, governor and Senator Sam Brownback. So uh, Senator Brown, governor, ambassador Brownback uh, was able to pull together a very broad coalition of people from many different religions uh, and did some very effective advocacy work on behalf of the Uyghurs in China, of the Rohingya and in Bangladesh and, and uh, the Boko Haram victims in Nigeria and, and so on. Um, he brought a real stature as someone who had been a top government leader to this position. And uh, that was a good thing. 
and, and, and his predecessor was a very liberal Democrat, and he also did a very good job. So they, together they showed that uh, there are things that we can agree on across a political spectrum. Uh, on the other hand, um, I, you know, I think President Biden has done an excellent job in setting a tone, a better tone for the country. Uh, but he's done some things already that are troubling. One of them just last week was he fired the general counsel of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. This was a woman who had given uh, extraordinarily competent work to protecting uh, uh, or uh, confronting religious discrimination in the workplace, which is what the EEOC's mandate, part of their mandate is all about. Uh, not just for Christians, but for people of many different uh, religions. Uh, but because she had been appointed by a Republican president, uh, even though it's an independent agency, he uh, asked, demanded her resignation. And when she refused, he, she, he fired her. So these kind of things, uh, we don't expect that any leader is going to um, perfectly embody what we think uh, principles of righteousness and justice should be. Uh, but uh, we also understand that God is sovereign. And so God can work through any president, good or bad, and, and does. And we also recognize that when you vote for a president, you're not only voting for that one person and the vice president that tags along, but you're in vo voting for several thousand uh, political appointees who are going to go into every branch of, of the administration, every cabinet agency and department. And uh, those people, uh, some of them are, are true believers in whatever their party stands for. But some are uh, much more radical than the president. It's certainly been the case uh, with President Biden. He, President Biden campaigned in one as a moderate and is trying to govern, I think, as a moderate. Uh, but uh, among these appointees, there are some who are far from moderate and who we anticipate will uh, do things that we won't like in the, in the years ahead. Uh, so, uh, but that doesn't mean that we're going to be attacking the president, whether we always look for ways to catch him doing something right and applaud that and support our leaders when we can and always pray for them. Great, thank you very much. Well, thank you, I, I enjoyed being with you all and I wish you God's blessings on your studies and on your future work in ministries. Thank you, thanks Galen, thanks a lot.